0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: Good morning. We, we have been working our way passage by passage through the books of Acts, and today, the next passage we come to is Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia." they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. May God bless the reading of his word.
0: Lisa. Well done with all those names. (laughs) Let's pray this morning. Lord, we are blessed to be here and to have your word opened to us. Lord, please prepare our hearts for the things of this passage, Lord, that we could see everything here that you want us to see in this text. Lord, open our eyes, as the psalmist says, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're anything like many Christians in our society, you may feel unsatisfied at times with the state of your relationship with God. Perhaps you've studied the Bible enough to know a lot of truths about God, and yet are experiencing relatively little in terms of an actual relationship with God. Perhaps God seems distant to you. And as a result, you often feel spiritually drained and depleted. Even as you try to be faithful in doing what God's called you to do. Your life is busy, yet strangely barren. And even though you may not be ready or close to ready to throw in the towel quite yet, you feel so weary that you find yourselves wondering at at times whether you're missing something as a Christian and, and whether this really is the fullness of the life God has for you. So what's the issue? Well, there are several possibilities, but just to focus on one of them. Could it be that you're trying to walk in the ways of God and do the work of God apart from the power of God given to us in the Holy Spirit? You know, I think a lot of Christians correctly understand that Jesus has given us specific instructions for how to live, as well as a clear mission that should guide our lives. The mission of reaching this world with the gospel. Yet it seems, uh, even though we probably wouldn't say this out loud, we often have the mentality that we're pretty much on our own now to accomplish that mission and to make it happen. It's as if Jesus was a busy teacher, and gave the class an assignment and then stepped out of the room, leaving us to complete the assignment on our own. Yet in reality, that couldn't be further from the truth. In John sixteen seven, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. That helper, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So make sure you understand what Jesus is saying here because it's pretty radical. He's saying that us having the Holy Spirit is actually better than us having Jesus himself right beside us. I mean, think about that. You know, how amazing would it be or have been to to be alive during Jesus' earthly ministry, right? And even to be one of his disciples maybe and have the opportunity to interact with Jesus face to face on a regular basis. I mean, that would be incredible. Yet Jesus is saying here that having the Holy Spirit is even better than that. It's to your advantage that I go away he says. Also, listen to what Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1, after his resurrection and right before he ascends into heaven. Acts 1, 4 through 5. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from there. So notice here what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't tell them that they have a mission and that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to help them with that mission, but that they should just do the best they can in the meantime before the Spirit comes. Now, he tells them, don't even try this apart from the Holy Spirit. The text even says that he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Any other translations say that he commanded them. It's pretty strong. Yet that's how essential the Holy Spirit is for the mission Jesus has given us. It's not even worth trying to accomplish this mission apart from the Holy Spirit. And then, throughout the book of Acts, we see and have seen in our journey. Over and over again, that the Holy Spirit is the one moving things forward. We might say that the Holy Spirit is very clearly in the driver's seat, and that the early Christians, well, they're sort of just along for the ride. In Acts 2, for example, it's the Spirit who enables the apostles to speak in other languages and who empowers Peter to preach his famous sermon at Pentecost. In Acts 4, it's explicitly said to be the Spirit who empowers Peter to boldly testify to the Jewish religious leaders about Jesus and his mission. Later in Acts 4, it's again the Spirit who enables the early Christian community to continue sharing the gospel, even in the midst of persecution. In Acts 6, it's being full of the Spirit. That's considered to be a key qualification for serving as a deacon. In Acts 7, it's the Spirit who enables Stephen to testify about Jesus to a hostile crowd and literally preach the gospel to his dying breath. In Acts 8, it's the Spirit who guides Philip to initiate a conversation with the Ethiopian official, which ultimately results in the the official's conversion. In Acts 9, it's the Spirit who enables Saul to regain his sight. And gives them a totally different outlook on life. In Acts 10, it's the Spirit who falls upon the first Gentile converts, making it clear to the Jewish Christians that the Gentiles are indeed legitimate followers of Jesus and should therefore be welcomed into the Christian community. In Acts 13, it's the Spirit who prompts the leaders of the church of Antioch to set apart Barnabas and Paul to become missionaries throughout the Roman Empire. And then throughout Paul's missionary journeys, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, it's the Spirit who continually shows him where he's supposed to go and what he's supposed to say and who gives him the boldness and the strength to say those things. So you literally can't go two steps in the book of Acts without bumping into the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere. And as for the early Christians... As I said, they're pretty much trying to keep up with what the spirit is doing. Right? He's the one moving things forward every step of the way. And I believe that theme is especially prominent in the main passage of Scripture we'll be looking at today, Acts 16:6 6 through 15. In this passage, we see that the work of God can't be done apart from the Spirit of God. The work of God can't be done apart from the Spirit of God. Now, notice that I'm not saying that just that we shouldn't do the work apart from the Spirit or, or that it would be difficult to do the work apart from the Spirit. No, I'm saying it can't be done apart from the Holy Spirit. Indeed, how foolish it is to try to do the work to which God's called us apart from the spirit whom he's given us. And hopefully that'll become clearer and clearer as we walk through this passage. So look with me at verses six through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come down to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So obviously there are quite a few places mentioned in these verses. You can see them represented on the map that we'll display. Um, Many of these verses record Paul and his team traveling through the region of Galatia, as it's called, and then the larger region of Asia, which would be Asia Minor, both of which you can see labeled on the map, and uh, then when they're in the city of Troas, it says, toward the top center of the map, they cross over the Aegean Sea and into the region of Macedonia. But the thing I'd like to focus on in these verses isn't the geography, but rather the repeated references to the Holy Spirit. Notice how in verse 6, it states that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Hmm. Interesting. Then, as if that weren't enough, verse 7 says that when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Then in verse 9, Paul receives a vision that we can safely assume is from the Holy Spirit of a man in Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So in four verses, the Holy Spirit shows up in a significant way no less than three times. That's not the kind of thing we can just read over and ignore if we want to be responsible Bible interpreters. Yet that's not all. know, <laughs> it's like an infomercial. <laughs> but wait, there's more, right? As we continue reading in this passage, we see the Holy Spirit not only as the one setting the agenda for Paul's missionary efforts, but also as the one working in the people Paul's seeking to reach. Look at verses 11 through 15. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now here again, there are plenty of things we could say about this passage from... Philippi being a Roman colony, to the Jews of Philippi not having enough people for a a full synagogue, and so simply having a place of prayer, to Lydia and her occupation as a seller of purple goods, which was a very profitable occupation in that day. However, the most important thing by far for us to note from this passage is the description in verse 14 of how Lydia came to embrace the gospel. It says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, of course, when it says that it was the Lord who opened her heart, uh, that doesn't mean that Jesus himself physically came back down from heaven in order to do this. Rather, it was Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He's the one who sent the Spirit. Also, if you remember back in verse 7, the Holy Spirit is even called the Spirit of Jesus. So Lydia was saved because the, the Holy Spirit opened her heart. And friends, that was the only way she could be saved. You see, the Bible teaches that we, left to ourselves, don't have the ability to repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus on our own. Ephesians 2.1 describes us all as dead in trespasses and sins. Also, Jesus himself says in John 6.44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Later in that same chapter, he, Jesus also says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So that's why the Holy Spirit had to open Lydia's heart to respond to the message she heard from Paul. She didn't have the spiritual ability to do that on her own. None of us do. We're not only condemned in our sin, but also in bondage to our sin, the Bible says. Yet when the Spirit opens our hearts, He enables us to see that Jesus is infinitely more satisfying than sin could ever be. He breaks the bondage of that sin. And he also reveals to us the truth of the gospel message that, that Jesus' death on the cross really did pay for our sin. That his resurrection really did pave the way for us to share in his victory over sin and death. The Spirit then directs us to place our confidence in Christ and Christ alone for our rescue. And not in any way in our own efforts. All of that is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's only through him that anyone is ever brought to saving faith in Jesus. As J.I. Packer has observed... Were it not for the Holy Spirit, there would be no faith, no church, no Christianity in the world at all. So, as you can see throughout every section of this passage in Acts 16, the work of God can't be done apart from the Spirit of God. And brothers and sisters, I'd like to be as emphatic as, as I could possibly be here and and reminds you that the Holy Spirit is just as critical for our lives and, and labors for the Lord today as he was back in Acts 16. We dare not make peripheral what God has revealed as so central. Now, I understand the the temptation that many of us may experience, and that is to allow the excesses of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements to essentially scare us away from the Holy Spirit. I mean, there may be some who are tempted to fear that if we start talking about the Holy Spirit too much today, who knows, we might be doing laps around this room and being slain in the Spirit tomorrow. And unfortunately, there are It's really not hard to find churches that do practice uh, those kinds of things, and and there are indeed many aspects of the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movements that I believe are extremely unhealthy and blatantly unbiblical. Um, It seems as though many professing Christians in these movements seem to have relatively little interest in what God has revealed in the Bible and are instead fascinated by the the new and novel. You know, they want to get the the latest information, the latest update rather than the the yesterday's news that we find in the Bible. Um, In addition, going along with that, they're often so focused on various phenomena that they believe to be from the Holy Spirit that their interest in such things seems at times to eclipse their interest in the gospel itself. You know, and instead of Marveling at the glories of Jesus and the the wonders of all that he has done for us, they're utterly preoccupied with showy spiritual phenomena that usually have very little discernible value in terms of healthy spiritual growth or impact. So I get all of that, right? I understand. However, It would be a tragic error to let all of those troublesome tendencies scare us away from what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit and and from recognizing our need for the Spirit's power in our midst. I mean, we need to let the Bible guide our behavior, not allow ourselves to be driven by our own reactionary tendencies. Take a moment. And just think about how amazing it is that the spirit of the living God actually dwells within us as Christians. In the Old Testament, God simply dwelled in the, the midst of his people. We see this during Israel's desert wanderings, for example. Exodus thirteen twenty two tells us that during these desert wanderings, God's presence was with them in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So God's presence was manifested at night in the form of a pillar of fire above the Israelite camp. But what happened at Pentecost? Acts 2.3 states that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. The fire of God's presence isn't just resting uh, above the Christian community as a whole, but over each one of the Christians individually. That's huge. God no longer simply dwells in the midst of his people. He now dwells within each one of them. Each one has direct Access to God in the person of the Holy Spirit and is able to enjoy His presence up close and personal. It's incredible. Yet keep in mind that even though every believer has the Holy Spirit, we don't automatically experience the fullness of the Spirit's work and influence in our lives. That's why Paul instructs Christians in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. That's a command, and I've come to believe is one of the most important commands in the entire New Testament. Now, what exactly does that mean, to, to be filled with the Spirit? Well, look at the context of the rest of the verse. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit is contrasted to being drunk with wine. When someone's drunk with wine, the wine is controlling them. You know, if they say something foolish while they're drunk, and you know, we might say, well, that's the alcohol talking." And in a similar way, though with obvious differences, that's sort of what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It simply means that the Holy Spirit is the controlling influence in our lives. And we're called to pursue that kind of relationship with the Spirit and experience that experience of the Spirit's power all the time. That means looking to the Holy Spirit for several things. I don't have time to give much explanation to each of these things, but if you're taking notes, feel free to write them down and you can look up the Bible verses afterward. There are six main ways in which the Holy Spirit ministers to us. Number one, he regenerates our hearts, Titus 3.5. Just like he opened Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel in our main passage, he opens our hearts to do the same and he replaces our stone-cold sinful hearts, with hearts that are spiritually alive, and that love Jesus. Second, the Holy Spirit illuminates the Bible, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12. He helps us understand the truths taught in the Bible, and also helps us see how those truths connect to our lives. We can't see what we need to see in the Bible without the Holy Spirit. Third, the Spirit shapes us to be more like Jesus. Galatians 5, and 23. He gives us victory over sins in our lives and produces within us what Paul very appropriately calls in that passage, the fruit of the Spirit. Fourth, the Spirit stirs our hearts with godly affections, leading us to love God, desire God, and treasure God above all else, Romans 5, 5. Fifth, he empowers us for ministry, equipping us with spiritual gifts to serve other Christians, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, and also empowering us for our witness to those who aren't Christians yet, giving us both the words to say, Luke twelve twelve as well as the boldness to say them when the time's right. Acts 4.31. And finally, the Spirit guides us into God's will. Great passage for that is Acts 16. Six through nine, our main passage. He does this in a variety of different ways, though always in accordance with biblical principles. You know, maybe he puts it in our heart, to talk to this person or that person about Jesus, right? Or maybe he gives us a clear sense that this particular Christian needs to hear this particular truth from the Bible or, or maybe be ministered to in this particular way. That's the Spirit's guidance. So those are six major aspects of the Spirit's ministry in our lives. And uh, to be candid with you guys, I believe there is a significant need for more of the Holy Spirit's power and ministry and influence in our church. In fact, I've even had to repent because
1: I don't think I've led
0: us very well in this area. After numerous hours of prayerful consideration, I I think we're missing it. (laughs) Not missing it totally, but missing it to a significant degree. I mean, just think about the book of Acts. Think about the prominence of the Holy Spirit that we've seen, not only in our main passage today, but throughout the entire book. I mean, how the early Christians, as I said, they were simply trying to keep up with what the Spirit was doing. Now, I'm not saying that every single detail in the book of Acts is meant to be normative or something that Christians today should try to imitate, but generally speaking, surely the Holy Spirit should be just as central for our lives and the life of our church today as he was among the early Christians. And here's what I believe that would look like, practically speaking. I boiled it down to two primary needs that I believe are especially relevant for our church. First, a greater awareness and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And I'd even say to the voice of the Spirit as he guides us, and teaches us, and gives us greater insight into the things of God. You know, I think of the way in which someone who, who's had extensive military training, maybe even in the special forces or something like that, and, and has had been, been in a lot of dangerous situations, the, the way a person see, like that sees the world differently. You know, that kind of person is a lot more aware of their surroundings, right? And, and sensitive to different vulnerabilities, or even signs of danger at times than a typical person would be. Almost like a sixth sense, if you will. And that's sort of like what I mean when I talk about a a greater uh, awareness and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Christians should see the world. They should go about their daily lives seeing the world in a different way than non-Christians. And be dialed in to the Holy Spirit's guidance and promptings and general ministry in their lives. As well as a need, our need for those things. Now, a word of pastoral guidance here. I believe it's very unhelpful and perhaps even presumptuous uh, to say things like, God told me this or that. Or, God said this or that to me. You know, I think I get what a lot of Christians mean when they say things like that, but that kind of language can be taken in a way that significantly undermines both the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. So my advice is to just avoid saying things like that. Instead, here's some practical guidance here. You might consider saying, the Holy Spirit seems to be giving me a distinct impression of this or that. Or the Holy Spirit seems to be prompting or leading me in this or that direction. Or the Spirit laid a burden on my heart for this or that. Or the Spirit helped me see this or that. So all these different phrases and, and, and ways of speaking are much more helpful than saying something like, God told me something. Also, notice how I've been deliberately referring to the Holy Spirit specifically and all of this suggested terminology, rather than a more general reference to God. Of course, there's nothing wrong with talking about God doing something in our lives or ministering to us in various ways. I mean, that's not theologically inaccurate. However, even though this might seem like a small thing, one thing I've noticed is that adjusting our language to speak not just of God in general, but the Holy Spirit specifically, It just communicates more of this idea of God's nearness. Maybe it's just me, but talking about the Holy Spirit being at work in my life in in certain ways just gives the impression that it's not simply some distant deity doing all these things from afar, but rather a God who has come to dwell within us and is intimately involved in our lives. So just that simple change in terminology from speaking of God in general to instead speaking of the Holy Spirit specifically has had a surprisingly significant impact on my mentality, as I believe it may have on yours as well. And then second, in addition to a greater awareness and sensitivity, I believe there's a significant need in our church for greater dependence and power. When it comes to the Holy Spirit. Again. As we've said. We never want to try to do. The work of God. Apart from the power. Of the Spirit of God. I think of Samson. In the book of Judges. When the Philistines had finally. Figured out the secret to his incredible strength. And had cut his hair. Judges 1620 says that when he woke up. He did Not know that the Lord had left him. Of course, I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit would leave us in the sense of not indwelling us anymore. But I can't help but wonder whether we can become so unaware and
1: unappreciative
0: of him that we effectively lose His power in our midst, and even worse, like Samson, don't even know it. How many churches do you think, especially in Western culture, have effectively lost the power and anointing and blessing of the Holy Spirit and are so busy with all of their different programs and activities that they don't even know it. What a tragedy. The power of the Holy Spirit, dear friends, is everything for a church. Listen, every church is going to have its fair share of issues, problems, shortcomings, And challenges. Yet the solution to all of those issues, problems, shortcomings, and challenges is actually quite simple. The Holy Spirit. He's the solution to every one of them. I mean, just take the area of evangelism, for example. If the problem is us being too afraid of what people might think about us to share the gospel with them, the solution Is the Holy Spirit giving us supernatural boldness, just like he did with the early Christians in Acts 4.31? If the problem is that we're not sure of what we're supposed to say in evangelism, well, the solution is the Holy Spirit giving us the words to say, just as Jesus promises he will in Luke 12.12. If the problem is that the people we're trying to reach just don't seem interested, The solution is the Holy Spirit opening their hearts, just as he did with Lydia in our main text. The Holy Spirit is the solution to every issue, problem, shortcoming, and challenge our church will ever face. So hear me when I say that there should be a a holy desperation for the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst and for him to come upon our church in unprecedented power. Do we have that kind of desperation? Is it showing up in our prayers, even in our Wednesday prayer meetings? You know, guys, our church is in a position, by God's grace, where we're, we're starting to acquire more resources and more amenities right? This building, all the fancy new tech equipment, and many other things that are surely tremendous blessings from God. But if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't have anything. Think about the story in 1 Kings 18 of Elijah having a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Those prophets did everything imaginable to get their false god to consume their sacrifice. They called out to him from morning till noon. They danced around. They cut themselves. Yet nothing happened. Likewise, we could work ourselves to the point of exhaustion in this church, focusing on all these human methods and devices and resources and and letting them truly consume our attention and essentially trying to do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. But guess what? It won't have much, if any, genuine and lasting spiritual impact on people if we want genuine and lasting fruit, then we need to turn our eyes to the God of Elijah and start looking to him and pleading with him to send down fire from heaven, as it were, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Do we have that kind of desperation for the Spirit's work in our midst? Are we consciously dependent on Him in that way? You know, maybe if we did, and maybe if we were we would see more people coming to faith in our church. And I have no doubt that we would be less weary and more energized and joyful In our work for the Lord. In fact, ministry would become less about us working for God and more about letting God do His work
1: through us.